Who's ready to get into God's Word this morning? Would you say amen? Amen. Let's take our Bibles then and be finding the third chapter once again of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Man, I'm telling you, I am profiting personally so much in this incredible story called Colossians, this great theological teaching, this incredible practical application of that theological teaching, and I hope it's been meaningful and is meaningful uh, to you as well. As you're finding your way to Colossians chapter number three this morning, a good morning to those of you at our Spanish Trail campus and to those of you that are watching uh, with us together online. After the first service, or the second service rather last Sunday, I had a young couple meet me right down here in the well to greet me. And they were speaking in accented English. They were from Munich, Germany. Uh, we'd never met before. She didn't know anybody from Hillcrest. She said, we've been watching you online for almost three years. I don't know how she found us other than a Google search, but she found us, and she's made a connection, and they were on vacation in the United States and came to Pensacola principally to come to Hillcrest live and in person. I just think that's the greatest thing in the world. Praise the Lord. They, I think really she just liked the way that you all amen my sermon. She wanted to come and, and uh, see what that was all about. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has there ever been a situation in your life where you were planning on attending a certain event, you didn't know what to wear? Amen. I hear the ladies chuckling this morning. Guys normally don't care too much about that, but I've had that happen to me. Every preacher that preaches in another church somewhere always asks that question. You know, do you preach out of a certain translation of the Bible, and what do you want me to wear? I asked that question the very first time I preached at Hillcrest, because I'd heard from the grapevine there were a lot of fashion policemen at Hillcrest. People wanted you to wear certain things from one end of the spectrum to another, so I asked that question. I asked that question one time to a friend of mine who was a missional strategist with the International Mission Board serving in Indonesia. Back in the late 1990s, he invited me to come and be the spiritual renewal preacher for a, a retreat that uh, they were doing for about 20 or 25 IMB, International Mission Board, journeyman missionaries. Young men and women, almost exclusively single, serving a two-year tour, tour on the mission field. And all these missionaries were in Indonesia. We were retreating into Golden Sand, Port Dixon, Malaysia, right on the Strait of Malacca, hot, humid climate year-round, but I'd asked my friend, having been delighted to accept that invitation to go and preach twice a day for a week, what preacher wouldn't want to do that, and I asked him, I said, well, what shall I wear? And he said, oh, man, we're in a tropical climate. He said, You'll want, we're all going to be in shorts and T-shirts the whole week, so you can, you can just come. If you want to wear a golf shirt and cargo shorts or whatever the case might be, come very, very casually because that's the way we're going to be dressing. And I said, that's great. So I packed a bag full of shorts and golf shirts and t-shirt attire and, and the like. And uh, I commenced to doing my thing for the whole week. On Thursday of that week, we had two visiting guests, vice presidents of the International Mission Board. And after I'd finished preaching that morning, one of those two came up to me and all but excoriated me for preaching the gospel in a pair of shorts. And I was so taken aback by that, I didn't, I, I didn't even think to tell him, here's the thing, man, I ask the question. I always ask the question, what shall I wear? And the man told me exactly what to wear, and I'm wearing it today, white, hairless, chicken legs and all. I'm wearing exactly <laughs> what the man told me 
to wear. I was so shell-shocked by that as a young preacher uh, that I've never, I, listen, I don't wear shorts to preach at VBS at Hillcrest anymore. And so some of y'all just need to take heart that even though I'm not in a full suit and tie every Sunday, you will never see me on Sunday morning preaching in a pair of shorts. So take that to heart. Oftentimes, when it comes to the Christian life, I think it's an important question that we ask as well. Because what we wear and how we wear it does carry a degree of importance, particularly when we're speaking of wearing garments metaphorically for how we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are to outfit ourselves, how we're to clothe ourselves to live for Jesus Christ. For the last couple of Sundays, we've been looking at the practical side of Paul's theological teaching, the theological teaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ in a pointed and direct way that you really don't see as intense, I don't think, anywhere else in all of his writings as we do here in Colossians. And he's taking that deep theological teaching from the first two chapters and applying it in terms of how we're to live our lives every day practically as followers of Jesus Christ. Right living is always based on right believing, and Paul always begins in his writings with right believing But he always makes a turn at some point along the way to help us to understand what our belief system means for us practically in terms of how we live every day as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is simply this. Paul's first two chapters remind us of this deep, incredible union, this mystical union, this oneness that believers have in Jesus Christ. The mystery of the gospel is summarized in a very simple phrase. The gospel is, in essence, Christ in you. That's what Paul calls the hope of glory, our hope for eternal living now and our hope for eternal life forever and ever and ever. And our union with Christ makes us new people. In 2 Corinthians 5, he will say that emphatically in a way most of us have memorized, that When we are in Christ, we become new creations and the old passes away and all things become new. So we're all new people in Christ and what he's teaching us here in chapter 3 is that new people always require a new look. And with that in mind, we need to recall that Paul is using the language of clothing, of taking off certain clothing in order to put on another set of clothing. Those are the phrases that he uses regularly in chapter 3. Put off and put on. And the idea is stripping off the old garments that no longer have a place on your body and in your life. They're soiled. They're out of date. They no longer look good. And so he says put those off. Strip them off. And now as new creations in Jesus Christ, put on clean clothes. Put on the garments of righteousness and the garments of holiness, the garments of Jesus Christ himself. And here's what those garments look like. That's the point that we're going to be looking at and making today. Last week, if you were here, we know, you know we looked at that concept from the negative, right? These are the things, Paul says, that we need to put away, things that we need to put to death, 
If we looked at that vice list, those 10 things that he mentions, representative things, not exhaustive, he could have mentioned more. But these are representative of things that new people who follow Jesus, disciples of Christ, need to put away and put to death once and for all and forever. Today, we come to the more positive aspects of our renewed behavior. I told you if it came today, you'd get the lighter side, the positive side, but lighter in one sense, but incredibly powerful and poignant and, and, and critical uh, nonetheless, these are things that Paul will say we need to put on as we follow after Jesus Christ. We find the new list, the now the virtue list, in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Let's take a look. The apostle writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So then the question that we address today is a very simple one. What shall we wear? What kinds of garments will demonstrate to a church of fellow believers and to the world around us that we're seeking things that are above and that we are not setting our minds on earthly things? Well, three things I want to mention from this passage today. First, the Bible says that we should clothe ourselves with the garment of compassion. The garment of compassion is the first article of clothing that new creatures in Jesus Christ are to clothe themselves with. And, you know, it's a very similar approach here with this virtue list, just as Paul did in the previous paragraph with the vice list. Uh, Paul makes a general statement and then he follows that general statement with a list of five representative virtues. Uh, as God's chosen people, literally as the elect of God, chosen by God, as a people unto himself, people who are to be marked, as Paul begins this passage, marked by holiness, not by unrighteousness, not by filthiness, not by the behavior of the world, but chosen elect people marked by the very holiness of Jesus Christ who now lives within us. Paul says, now with that understanding of your identity in Christ, here are some things <clears throat> that you need to put on. And he begins with compassion. Verse 12, put on then compassionate hearts. Now, most everybody in here knows what compassion is. Compassion basically is mercy. It's an active demonstration of love towards somebody that's in trouble, towards somebody that needs help. In fact, the best definition of compassion I've ever heard is simply this, three words, write it down, love in action. Love with legs, love with feet. It's active demonstration of love to those who are in a helpless, hapless, hopeless condition. Somebody's hurting, somebody needs help, and when you demonstrate love through some act of tenderness, you demonstrate what the Bible calls compassion. 
Paul's going to use four other terms here in verse number 12. But every one of them really, in one sense, they're all separate and distinct, but the following four really modify his, this concept of compassion that he lists first and foremost. When he says, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience, bearing with one another. All of that really modifies this beginning statement where Paul says, put on then, as you put off all this junk, put on then compassionate hearts. You want to make a difference in the world? You need to live differently in the world. That's a world that lives for themselves, a, a world that lives to satisfy the desires of the flesh. If you want to stand out, be more about them than you are about yourself. Learn to identify with merciful hearts, people who are hurting, and then step into that hurt and touch it and make a difference. All of these terms that he uses here are important. We all know basically what they mean. You don't need to come to church on Sunday morning to have a preacher tell you what kindness is, or at least you shouldn't. We all know what kindness is. Kindness is just a demonstration of a tender spirit. I tell you what, are y'all listening? Say Amen. Kindness is being nice. Now, we do have some Christian people or people who claim to be Christ need to be reminded they need to be nice because not everybody in the house of the Lord is a nice person. And it just, that's always kind of been a mystery to me because generally speaking, Christ's followers are supposed to be kind people because the Bible teaches us that it was a, out of a heart of kindness that God actually saved us. The God that we serve, the Christ that we serve, was a tender, meek, and mild, humble, kind Savior. And so to be like Christ means to be like Him in that way. Generally speaking, we're supposed to be kind, tender people. Sometimes, many times, particularly the way we're trained in our Western culture, our default is often anger and criticism. And then we walk away after having popped off, and in our spirit, we thought, I shouldn't have done that. So our default oftentimes is to anger, and we have to remind ourselves to be nice. But the thing about that is, the default for a follower of Jesus, somebody that's following Jesus in an abiding relationship, the default ought to be to act normally kind, and have to remind ourselves that from time to time, it's okay to be angry, and we need to be angry. That ought to be the default. And yet most of the time, because of the way we tend to be trained, we flip that on its head. But we need to live with kindness, because kindness is at the heart of having a heart of compassion. Then there's humility. That's the willingness to go low, to voluntarily lower yourself, to put yourself in the back seat so that others can come first. That's the model of Christ-likeness, putting others before yourself. That's one of my wife's favorite Bible verses from Philippians 2, around verse 2 or verse 3. Let nothing be done from vain conceit or selfish pride, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each one of you, Paul says, should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And with that statement, 
He then springboards through the rest of Philippians 2, or at least the first part of Philippians 2, into this majestic picture of Jesus Christ. And in drawing this picture of Jesus, he begins with this other-focused kind of life that's based on humility. Putting yourself in the back seat so that others can be lifted up is more important than yourself. Humility is a willingness to stoop in order to serve other people. The Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve all the way to the cross, to give his life as a ransom for many. And humility is a beautiful picture we find in the Lord Jesus Christ, even the night before he died, when he does that very thing. He stoops low in order to wash the grime and the dirt and the excrement off of his disciples' feet. That's one of the most beautiful pictures of humility that you find in all of the Bible. And Paul says here, this is what y'all are supposed to put on in terms of how others perceive you to be as a genuinely humble person who cares more about them than you do about yourself. And then there's meekness, very closely related to humility. A meek person is by definition a humble person. You can't have one without the other. Gentle, that's meekness, gentleness. A meek person is a gentle, humble, unassuming person. Not necessarily a weak person, but gentle and unassuming. In fact, the word meekness carries inherent with it, with it a, a sense of strength, but strength that's been bridled, strength that has been tamed by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some of our Hillcrest members that own horses. I love horses, and horses are br a brute beast if they're out of control. One thing I will do is ride a tame horse, but I ain't riding no buck in Bronco, Right? Well, uh, a horse that you can actually get on and ride and that enjoys carrying you on its back is by definition meek. Very strong. It could wear you out if he wanted to. But he doesn't because he's had the wildness tamed out of him. And that's what God does with new creatures in Christ. He takes them all bound up in self. He takes all this activity and all this energy and he redirects it under his authority and under his control so that you and I can be used for productive purposes and not just for selfish ones. And so meekness is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and so much so and in terms of its importance, he puts it in the Beatitudes. Blessed, happy, inwardly sufficient are the meek, those who have yielded their strength to God and come under the control of God for they're the ones that shall inherit the earth. The earth belongs to them. And then there's patience, and we all know that this is something we hadn't mastered yet. Amen. And the thing about that, when you do all of these, when you're able to master humility, and when you're able to master meekness, and when you're able to master kindness, and you put these garments on, one of the spiritual fruits that inevitably follows is patience. Uh, something that I know that most of us in the room would freely admit as to not having mastered yet. And the reason that this is important when you take it in context is because you remember, we go back another chapter, we'll be reminded that there are false teachers in Colossae. And you remember, Paul's already defined these guys. He's defined them as, by definition, proud people. And they're supposed to be gospel-centered, right? They're all about God. They're talking up a big, uh, a big gospel about God that's a false gospel, which is no gospel. But Paul's already outed them as being full of pride, puffed up, self-promoters, 
and they're out to profit personally off of you. They're not about you. They're not about the glory of God. They're not about the growth of the church. They're, they're about themselves. But God's people are to live with an outward focus, a compassionate focus that's centered on others, one that seeks to actively serve others and actively bless others, humble, meek, patient, and kind. We need to be reminded the most popular, if not the most popular, it's certainly the first runner-up parable that Jesus ever told was about a man who demonstrated pity and compassion off somebody who'd been wounded. The parable of the Good Samaritan, everybody can almost quote it. And it has to do with putting others ahead of yourself and being merciful and lowering yourself and spending of your money to care for other people who are in need. That's what it means to look like Christ. That's what it means to be a good neighbor. And Jesus said after he told that very popular parable, now you go and what? Do likewise. Last Wednesday night, I taught over in the Northwest Hall from a passage in Exodus 17, a passage that I've referenced any number of times, but I've never preached a sermon on it until last Wednesday night. And it describes for the first time Israel coming under a great attack by an enemy army since they crossed the Red Sea. All throughout their wandering in the desert, their attacks were from within the camp. But now they have a hostile army coming from outside the camp for the first time since the drowning of the Egyptian cavalry in the Red Sea. And there you have this incredible picture of an 80-year-old Moses standing high on a hill overlooking the battlefield. And we're told that as long as Moses had his hand held high with that rod of God in his hand, Israel, led by Joshua on the battlefield, was bringing home the victory. But Moses was an 80-year-old man. Y'all try to hold your hands. Start to have everybody just hold your hands up. We're going to do it for 20 minutes. We won't do it, though. But most of you wouldn't last 20 minutes much less an entire day in battle, and Moses was 80 years young, right? So his hands started to droop. His strong arms got weary, and he began to lower them. And when he lowered them, the Amalekites rose up, and they found a sense of renewal, and they began to fight strong and push back the Israelites. And so we have this beautiful picture, seeing that he had weak hands and weary arms. Two men, Aaron, the brother of Moses, and Hur, who was the son of Caleb, came alongside to help him. They get him a stone to set on top of. And one on side of the other, they stand beside him and they lift up those weary arms, keeping them held high perpetually until Joshua could bring home the victory. Can I say this morning, that's exactly your calling? Not necessarily to stand with your hands held high. You're calling more often than not. Sometimes God will call us to do Moses-like things, but most of the time God will call people in his congregation to be more like Aaron and her than to be like Moses. To stand along somebody with weary hands and weary arms and help lift them high so that a victory can be brought forth by God. That's our calling. Galatians 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Who do you know who has weary arms that you can help lift up? There are lots of ways you can do that. 
You say, well, pastor, I'm willing to help anybody. All they've got to do is ask. They'll never ask. Most people I know would rather lie in a hospital bed or die than ask somebody to help them. No, your job is to notice it and step into it. Who do you know who has weary arms? Maybe a little bit behind paying a bill. You can pay it. You say, well, I'll send them. No, I didn't say send them to benevolence. You pay it. You got it. You pay it. Help them pay a bill. You can loan them a car. You can help their family have Christmas. You can take them a meal. You can write them a note. You can pray for them. Then tell them you're praying for them. Ask what else you can help them do. Last Wednesday night, in their Wednesday night gathering, our student ministry blessed two families in need, get collected among themselves, and gave each of those families over $1,000 each to help with Christmas. I mean, we got teenagers in here living this very gospel, and they hadn't even heard me preach about it yet. I'm saying that's love in action. This is what it means to put on the garment of compassion. But let me ask you this. What do you do when people aren't always that way toward you? What do you do when people aren't always demonstrating a compassionate heart or humility or meekness or patience toward you? Well, that takes us to the second thing. As a transformed follower of Jesus, you learn to clothe yourself with another garment, and that is the garment of forgiveness. Clothe yourself with the garment of forgiveness. That's in the last part of verse 13. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you almost uh, also, rather, must forgive. Am I the only one in the house this morning? Anybody else in here struggle with forgiving people when you've been hurt? One of the most challenging things for a believer to do, even though we've been transformed. Boy, I tell you, this takes an act of the will. It does not come naturally. It's tough. Forgiveness is just hard. It's hard forgiving somebody that's rejected you or hurt you or insulted you or abused you or manipulated you or wronged you in some way. But let me just say this morning to everybody, that's not an excuse for not forgiving. As the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. For somebody that's been forgiven by God, that verse means that forgiveness is not just important, it's critically essential. You really, when you become a follower of Christ, in a sense, you forfeit the right not to forgive. Because Christ has chosen to forgive you as a sinner. And we're to forgive as we have been forgiven. It's the pattern of Jesus Christ himself. And remember, we're all about becoming like Christ. And becoming like Christ as disciples of Christ means wearing the garments of Christ. And there is no question that one of the garments of Christ is this active life that's modeled after forgiveness. The word forgive is a word that means to remove or to carry away, to send away. And at its heart, it gives us the image of erasing a debt or forgiving it. We call it forgiving a debt, erasing a debt, canceling a debt. And remember, from our earlier study here in Colossians, we define sin in one sense as indebtedness to God. 
Sin puts us in a condition of perpetual debt to God. We cannot pay the debt ourselves, which means we're in a debtor's prison unless somebody comes along and pays the debt for us. Well, that's what Christ did when he died on the cross. Amen. He came and he paid the debt for us. He erased the debt, canceled the debt. All of our sin, past, present, and future, has been nailed to the cross of Christ, and God's just carried it away in Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't do that for friends. He didn't do it for family. He did it for sinners. Christ died for the ungodly, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and the cancellation of that debt in a word came by one act of Jesus Christ, namely forgiveness. It was the forgiveness of Jesus that carried the debt away. And he modeled forgiveness his whole life. He forgave people of their sins. What put the Pharisees on their ear? Because only God could forgive sin. And they would hear Jesus sending people away, say, go in peace, your sins have been forgiven. And they just went nuts over that. So you got this picture of Jesus modeling forgiveness to those who came to him in faith. He even prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners while they were driving spikes into his wrist. Father, forgive them. Could have judged them. Should have judged them. But he forgave them. They know not what they do. As he's dying, he turns to one of the thieves who's dying right alongside him, forgives the thief who's dying on a cross, who wants to come in to the kingdom of Christ. And even with his own death, now for those who follow after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he offers free and unconditional forgiveness to people like us. Is there anybody in here today that thinks they deserve the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? You do not. We all deserve judgment. But God in Christ demonstrates forgiveness. And if we're going to follow after Jesus, we need to put that garment on. Put on the garment of forgiveness. I forgive because the Christ I follow has graciously forgiven me and that's the principal reason that Christ demands it in terms of our horizontal relationships how we deal with others who wrong us he's already made it clear in the previous paragraph if you're a transformed follower of mine that's living with me on the inside of you transformed by my grace and my mercy and my heart of compassion you don't respond to other people with bitterness you don't respond to other people with malice, with anger. We talked about that last Sunday. These are things that you need to put to death and put away in your own life. You put that stuff away. Instead, we learn to respond like Christ. We might feel bitter, but we don't take the bitterness out on the other person. We give the bitterness to Jesus and ask him to carry it away as we choose to forgive the other person and let that stuff go. But if you're like me, you find you have difficulty letting stuff go. Anybody have difficulty letting stuff go? I was having a conversation with somebody this week, and they were with another person. The other person turned to them and said, look, you just got to learn to let that go because the situation's not going to change. And the other person said, I can't let it go. That's the problem. No, you got to learn to let it go. You need to get it out. Get it out to Jesus. 
and choose to live in forgiveness for the other person. So many of us are like that. I've, I've told many people this before. We, we're like that well-ordered, well-organized businessman who couldn't throw anything away, kept file after file after file, year upon year upon year, couldn't get rid of stuff, had two or three secretaries to deal with all of that, and finally they came in and they said, look, this is out of control. You've got stuff in here you're never going to touch again, stuff you're never going to use again. Let us organize this mess for you, and we're going to take that stuff that we know you're never going to need ever again, and we're going to run it through the shredder. And he thought about it in a minute. He said, you know what? You're right. Clean it out. Shred it up. But before you shred anything, make sure you make a copy of everything. <laughs> and that's the way we are. It's easy to give lip service, say, I'm going to let that stuff go. I'm just going to turn it loose. But then you make a copy and file it. But that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is learning to release that poison to the Lord, choose to respond in humility and patience and loving kindness with a compassionate heart to send that stuff away regardless of what they've done or regardless of what it is. Learn to send it away, give it to God, and trust God to be the judge. Because he'll be a lot fairer than you will. Because he knows all the facts that you and I don't. Some four years ago, our nation was heartbroken when a young man walked into a Wednesday night prayer meeting in Charleston, South Carolina, and started to shoot the place up. And nine people were killed in a house of God on their knees in prayer. And what surprised much of our country was what happened several days after that when the young perpetrator um, went before a judge, a magistrate, at a bond hearing shortly after he was arrested. And there at that bond hearing, there were many representatives from that church who were in attendance. And the magistrate allowed many of them to face this young man and speak to him. And, and when they did, one after another, after another, after another, spoke to that young man, and every single one of them told him that they had forgiven him. Every one of them. One of them said, you know what? You took something very precious from me, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Another one came <clears throat> and said, our church is the family that love built. We have no room for hate. So we must forgive you. And I do forgive you. I just think that's remarkable. I'm telling you, you got to be walking tight with Jesus to do that. And in many respects, how tightly you're walking with Jesus is revealed in everyday, this is not an everyday experience, thank God, but in everyday experiences where people do hurt us in other kinds of ways and often hurt us very deeply. How can you tell somebody's with the Lord? They choose to forgive instead of retaliating because that retaliation is what the world does. Jesus said something one time about learning to turn the other cheek. I don't know. Is that in the Bible? I think it is. And that's what he's talking about fundamentally. Learning to respond to injustice 
from a heavenly position rather than like the rest of the world. You talk about getting the world's attention. When the media saw all of that forgiveness going on in that courtroom, they just shook their head. They didn't know what to do with all of that. They didn't even know how to explain it to people who were watching on television. Let me ask you another question. Who do you know today? Who do you know that's hurt you deeply? That you know in your heart as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to release that poison, let it go, and offer them forgiveness. Maybe it's somebody in your family. I'm amazed at how family members get at each other's throat, usually when somebody dies. I had a lawyer tell me one time, Jim, every family fights. This is a Christian lawyer. Told me that one time. And he's, a, he's an estate lawyer. He said, every family fights. I said, well, yeah, no, no, no. Every family fights in some sense that I work with. There's always a disagreement. So maybe there's a family member that you need to release and forgive. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody with whom you used to be close. You say, well, pastor, I just can't. Maybe it's somebody that's not even alive anymore. Hey, hey, hey. I've sent people to gravestones before. I sure have more than once. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the gravesite, and you're going to have a talk with that person right there. They're not here, but you are, and there's some things that you've got to let go before you can move on with life and be pleasing to the Lord. Who do you know today that you need to forgive? Yeah, I can't do it, Pastor. No, you can't. You can't do it, but yes, you can if Christ is in you. Christ is living in you. You've got the power to do everything this Bible commands you to do. And forgiving others is not a suggestion, brothers and sisters. All of these are imperatives. They're commandments of Christ. So if you're going to live obediently, Christ understands you and I aren't perfect yet. But he also understands we've been perfected spiritually and he's in us and he can help us where we have weak hands and weak hearts. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Man, I got to finish. I'm preaching this morning. I'm not even done yet. I got to finish real quick. Third, clothe yourself with the garment of love. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is just so important. We need a whole sermon on love. But, you know, the thing about love is it's listed last here, not because it's of lesser importance, but actually it's listed last for emphasis because it's of the most importance. It kind of is a tone that Paul takes in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the most remarkable passage on love in the Bible, where he uses superlative language to define and describe the place of love in a believer's life. Love isn't just important, it's the greatest of these. Love isn't just important, it's the most excellent way. And he says here that love binds everything together. That's why he lists it last here, because it serves as a binding agent that keeps all of these other qualities working in what he calls perfect harmony. I mean, think about it. Apart from love, you can be kind, but it'll usually be kindness to serve yourself. You'll be looking to get something out of it. So it's a misdirected kindness apart from love. 
Apart from love, humility can actually be a form of pride. There is a false humility that's the greatest kind of pride imaginable. And that's what happens when you try to be humble apart from love. Apart from love, meekness can actually be manipulative. You can manipulate other people trying to be meek and act lower than they are all the while you're trying to get something out of them apart from love. And let me tell you this, apart from love, patience is impossible. Amen. You're trying to be more patient, you need to be more loving. Because when you learn to be more loving, patience usually follows right along in line. And apart from love, forgiveness is usually nothing but lip service. You say you forgive somebody because I'm a Christian and I got to forgive. I forgive you. And then you walk away with a heart full of hate because there's no love there. No, trying to live like Jesus apart from love is kind of like the Old Testament Hebrews trying to make bricks without straw. The straw is the binding agent. The straw is what keeps it together, right? You take the straw out, it's just a big gooey mess. And so is your Christian life apart from love, a formless, incoherent mess. So Jesus is not saying any of these most prolifically love as an option for believers. This is who we are in Christ. And to live obediently means we have to learn to love others. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. And Jesus said that in John 13, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. These brothers and sisters are the garments of Christ. Compassion, forgiveness, and love which binds it all together. And let me just say as we conclude this morning, when it comes to what we ought to wear, these brothers and sisters are the garments of Christ and they never go out of style. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.